Hello, y'all. This is Johnny Sanson coming to you from New Orleans, Louisiana, and you're listening to Talking Blues. So is live performance, is that back in New Orleans now at the end of March here? I think just last week um, was the first show that, that, that they had at Tipitina's you know, legendary local club that everybody's dying to get back to. And uh, they just were able to open the doors, which was the first indoor performances. We've been having some uh, outdoor performances. Um, mostly what's happened in the city in New Orleans has been uh, house concerts, front porch concerts, and they've been uh, allowing it at places that are in between, not concert venues, not bars, not restaurants. It's been, for whatever reason, that uh, the breweries are allowed to have music. Uh, they're in between. They're not a bar. Um, so they've had seating. They've had uh, seating available. And when the seating runs out, nobody else can come. Outdoor shows. Uh, they have to sell food, and uh, the breweries ha are, have a lot of open space, so they've been able to pull things up, and everything else has been kind of private, which has been very interesting process of people being able to put on their own little shows with who they want to have, and, and it's been not only interesting but rewarding for a lot of people that wouldn't play with certain people. So now you have a little opportunity as a, a guy with a big front porch and, and a lot of neighbors or good friends to say, hey, wouldn't it be cool to hear uh, John Cleary play with Walter Wolfman Washington? Let's get the two of them and put them together. And they might not do that unless somebody called them and said, come and do it. Right. I'm only using them for an example, but uh, songwriters that have been getting together that have never got together so you and it's been a fan-based opportunity for people to say, I would love to hear this guy play with this guy. We can do that at my house. And, and since everybody's out of work, it's not about money anymore. It's, it's about just trying to do something uh, for the community and bring things back. That being said, we've been through all that period. And now the mayor has said we can move into stage three, which means... Um, the bars can open. I don't know that they can have music. It's been very, very strange. When they started out, they said we can have live music, but you can't play a wind instrument or sing, hmm. which <laughs> is like, I guess we'll never have to do this again. If you play <laughs> piano, you're okay, or drums or guitar, but you can't play, you know, saxophone or harmonica or, or sing because that's air coming out of you. Very strange rule. That was there for a while. Uh, now we're just starting to see things where clubs are having. Tipitina's was the first one last week. Very exciting, you know, soft opening with uh, limited seating. And the show that I'll be doing weekly is at a, a theater uh, that opened on broad street in new orleans they can't they can't really do the movies in the theater so they opened another theater outside <clears throat> and they put a big they built a big screen kind of like like a 
drive-in movies kind of screen with a stage. And uh, they said, well, let's see what happens if we have performance, live performance. And they were having puppet shows and all kinds of weird stuff. And then they moved into uh, music. Music took off immediately. They started having afternoon shows, matinees before the movie. And then uh, eventually the, the music was bringing in more people than the movie. So now they're having continuous music. And uh, next Monday, I start a residency uh, at the Broadside Theater. Um, uh, it's called uh, Johnny Sansone's Blue Monday Blues Party. And I have assembled a, a band, five-piece band, with the guys that I think are the best people for the job. And then we have a weekly guest each Monday. I'm really hoping for that, to bring the tradition back for that. All the shows have been selling out there because you can only 150 capacity. So uh, you have to buy your tickets way in advance. The, the tables have really turned a lot. You know, mm -hmm. before we weren't sure what was going to happen. Now people snap up tickets before they anybody else can get to them. How much playing have you done recently? Well, I'm I'm going to a gig in a uh, a couple hours. Uh, I've been in in my house recording the last few days but at least once a week to to two last weekend i played four shows in four days over the weekend so it, it's uh it's been months months at a time without doing any playing at all so what's that like to because um, i presume you sp you've spent most of your life playing on a very consistent basis and to have this period where you don't play for months what is that like and what is it like to get back on stage and and to experience that live thing that you do it started out refreshing to me because you know we spend most people see the the you know driving in a van getting out get carrying the stuff in and out and um playing the show and you believe well that is a lot of work traveling around doing all that stuff. And really that part is not the work. The work is, uh, is having to promote and book and all the things that happen on a daily basis, always looking, you know, eight to 10 months ahead. Well, all these pieces have to fit together and it's a giant puzzle. And unless you have some kind of scale management uh, agency, somebody that's looking after your best interests for the things that are going to come later, then you're constantly in scramble mode. And it's difficult for the working guy that's just trying to keep his head above water, make enough money to keep a band out on the road or locally. It is uh, a huge undertaking that nobody sees. Mm -hmm. So to answer that question, for a, the first couple of months, I, I was like, wow, I can do all this stuff I just never had a chance to because I always had an interview or get on the phone or as, as soon as somebody, you would think, a, you know, a text or an email to somebody is going to get the job done. But a lot of times you have to get somebody on the phone because negotiations, it, it, everything is difficult. So you almost have to sit by the phone. When all this stuff went down, I was like, you know, I, I have this old antique um, Russian motorcycle with a sidecar. 
and I had all the engine parts machined and they've been sitting there for three years. I can go put that together now. <laughs> and, I, and uh, you know, I always wanted a pizza oven. Well, I studied up on how to do it. And, uh, you know, I built this beautiful pizza oven in my backyard. Uh, and then I ended up building up a whole, I have a bar and a, a, a kind of a, a, a two-story thing that I built to kind of resemble, you know, something in the French Quarter. And just came up with this <laughs> to stay busy. I, I just created a whole nother uh, thing for me to do. So the transition to going from all those things, which now I have, and I wouldn't ever had the time for uh, going from the tr transition to those things back into music is, is been a real challenge because now uh, as I'm doing the interview with you, I just did an interview uh, right before this with a, uh, some people in New Jersey um, and uh, you know and then I'll be heading to a gig and after that uh, we'll be back and working in the studio so things are rolling and I, it's really good I don't know if that answered your question well it's a great answer I, I guess I was more interested in what it feels like to play in front of people after not playing in front of people for a long time and and making that is it just something that just comes back to you immediately or is it a, an, an adjustment for you to get on stage i haven't done that many band gigs i've been working a lot as a solo which has really turned things around for me too it, it also led to an opportunity that i didn't think about when i let people know i I'd, I'd be willing to come and play solo i realized all of these ballads that i write um, that just have no purpose on big stages because you know you do too many of those and people just are like come on I came here to rock you know? uh, all of a sudden all these ballads and sleepy beautiful music uh, has its potential for people that are you know sitting in lawn chairs and they've been stuffed up and then they're all wearing masks and stuff and all of a sudden all some of these words come to them and, and they get the the idea where they wouldn't have spent the time before or the emotion that they're feeling. So for, for me to have a whole nother career as a solo artist, I had no plan to do that. But when it started getting good for me, I realized, hey, you know, this is an, a whole nother opportunity that I didn't even plan on having that is working really good for me. And uh, so I got used to doing that during this time, but not playing with the band because you couldn't put people together. As soon as we started playing as a band, everybody's in the same boat. So you're on stage and your equipment is, you know, not as rusty as you are. And, you know, things are not working and instruments that I haven't played in a while. I have, you know, they're not working and they're buzzing and, you know, all there's all, all these other headaches to go along with not only that you can't handle just jumping on stage it's a, some, a stage you've been on a hundred times now it's a whole new presentation but your equipment is is going <laughs> south on you too so uh, it all comes right back um people are really excited and it it doesn't change all that much for me i i, I know once I once the ball gets rolling, it all comes back, and uh, I see 
taking some time off is probably a good thing. We can't afford to do it. So it's, it may be a, a blessing in disguise. I wonder as a player how how things change for you becoming a solo artist or a solo performer during this period. What, what did you learn about yourself approaching music a different way? Well, that's a good question. The, the, I think the most interesting point about that is that um, I'm a front man for the band and I'm generally playing uh, harmonica and singing or playing accordion and singing. I play a little bit of guitar when it's needed as a rhythm guitar player. When I write all the songs, I, I always play all original music anytime I play and to the point where I can't even remember how to play a Hank Williams song because <laughs> I haven't done it in so long. Every once in a while, they're like, wow, that, you know, that, uh, that, that song, uh, like John Prine or something, man, I forgot what a good song that is. And I'll start playing it and say, man, I don't even remember how, how it goes now. But anyway, going out and being a solo guy. Now I am singing the songs the way I wrote them before we record them. They're very basic. Um, I'm playing harmonica on the rack. So my rack playing has got a lot better. I'm, and I realized that uh, my singing has actually gone in a different direction because now I am accompanying myself. It's just me and my voice and my guitar. So it's it's been a really good thing for me and a, and a little bit more of a learning process because I've never had to do it. And when I get put in that situation, I find that it's actually helped. I, I When I got on stage, uh, you know, I've been a blues shouter for so many years. When we come around to the ballads, I realize, wait a second, let me be a little bit more airy about this. And, you know, uh, so the voicings change just a little bit. I'll probably fall right back into screaming, but <laughs> I've been shouting the blues for way too long. Um can we go back in time? Tell me, I, I think your dad was a big influence on you musically. Um, he used to play the saxophone and he, I think, handed you the saxophone and taught you somewhat to play the saxophone. Tell me a little bit about your dad's influence on you musically. Well, uh, you know, I was listening to the, the Kim Wilson interview. I thought it was great. You know, I've known, known Kim a long time and a lot of those stories I knew I'm not trying to get off track, but I, I did know his dad was a singer, but I didn't know much more about him. So that was very interesting for me to hear. My father was a sax player that played uh, in, in a, he when he went to World War II, he was in uh, pulled aside by Dave Brubeck, who, who was assigned to put together a band uh, while they were in France. There was two ways you could have went. Um, it was right during the Battle of the Bulge. And if you went with Patton's army to the left, you, then there's a really good chance you weren't coming back. And if you went to the right, they were holding off to keep you over here. These were the soldiers that at the time, the war was almost over, but they had to br bring all these new forces in. All these musicians came in. It was really, really interesting when I started talking about this. And I don't want to get too far off, but this is a very interesting point that my brother told me that they went over on the Queen Mary. And I was talking to Benny Turner, who's uh, Freddie King's little brother. And he said, 
he said, Johnny, my, my dad went to war. I remember him coming home because Benny's old enough to remember that. I remember him coming home, but he left and he went to flew to New York and they, they went on the uh, Queen Mary. So my father was on the same boat. Now at that time it, there was segregation. So they, they were, wouldn't be together. But when Dave Brubeck put this, this band together, it was to entertain the troops. Some of they knew were not going to come back. So they wanted to give these guys, you know, some whatever that they gave them. Uh, there was a USO truck with a piano and some girls and this band that my dad was in. And uh, they ended up, he, they ended up having to, uh, Dave Brubeck was supposed to pick out the musicians that he made friends with. And some of them were uh, African-American guys that had, you know, were not supposed to be together. And Dave said, if, if I can't have these guys with us, then I'm not doing this. And he kind of integrated the, the whole situation. So my father was in this band where later on they went on to after the uh, after the the war was over, they stayed in London and with uh, the USO tour and they celebrated for a year. <laughs> they played wow. in the giant theater and they were the house band and they they backed everybody from Ella Fitzgerald, you know, on down. And another one of my favorite stories is my mom telling me the first date she went on with my dad. She was 18 years old and he took her to a little place in, in, the, uh, in Harlem and they went in. And there was only like 10 chairs in there and a guy playing piano. And she wasn't very impressed until Ella, Ella Fitzgerald came in and hugged Dave and my dad and sang a song with them. And then, of course, my mom was like, who, who are you? Yes, <laughs> so, Because he had backed her. They were all friends. You know, there were a lot of people like, you know, Mickey Rooney, a lot of these guys would would burl ives these guys would come to our house when we were a kid you know these these people went through a very hard time uh you know in being soldiers and being in the entertainment business um so now my dad in instructed me to he picked me out of i have a younger sister and two older brothers and he decided i was going to be the guy i don't know what he saw in me but he knew that i was going to be the guy to carry so eight years old, I started playing his saxophone that he carried through the war. It was a 1920s Martin alto. And uh, I started taking lessons and uh, I became a musician and I thought I was a musician. He would show me, say the two things I want to make sure that you get when I come home from having a, a, a class or taking a lesson from one of his friends, he'd say, there's two things you have to have, and you can do anything you want with music, but you have to have these two things. You have to have good tone, and you have to have good phrasing. And whether I could play or not, he insisted in these things. And the interesting thing is, through my entire career, people have said to me, your phrasing is like, uh, you know, a guitar player or something, and, you know, and your timing is, is really, and I said, well, my dad told me that's all I have to do, so that's what I did, 
and it makes complete sense. And when I give lessons to people, uh, especially younger guys starting out, that's what I tell them. These are very, very important things. If you could play one note and 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 touch somebody with it, then you know the the battle has begun. You you've got membership. How how do you teach tone and how do you teach phrasing or how do you learn that? There's it depends what instrument you're playing. Tone comes from uh, so many different things. Whether it's a wind instrument, it's it's different. Uh, harmonica players have are constantly searching for this because you right. it really separates the men from the boys is is tone um saxophone the clarity the fatness all these things come but you're chasing this all the time so when you hear somebody play uh, how does he do that so you're trying to get trying to get to imitate that sound that is there's always somebody to look higher to to, to find it and it essentially, there is no, especially with harmonica, there is no way to just hold up a harmonica and, and play and you can't see anything. You know, it has to be explained to you. I remember bu buying the first uh, Fabulous Thunderbirds record and saying, man, this guy is unbelievable. I can't wait till I meet him. And uh, later I found out we were in the same school because uh, I was already getting lessons from Kim, from um, uh, Junior Wells and, and uh, James Cotton, you know, those guys would come, I was in college and they would come through town and play. And I was right there and made friends with them right away. So he, I was in the same school Kim was, he just got there before me and, and he was much more talented. So. Okay. So you have, I mean, you were talking about, um, New Orleans and how you couldn't sing or you couldn't uh, play wood instruments or instruments that that was wind instruments. You're talented enough that you play multiple instruments. So even though you might not be able to play the harmonica live, you could still play the accordion or I guess you can't play the saxophone, but the guitar. Um, at what point, I, I presume this idea of tone and phrasing would have applied to every instrument that you would have picked up. So when you started picking up the guitar at the age of 10, is that correct? That yeah. you also had the idea that tone and phrasing was important in guitar and the harmonica. I think the lesson that my father was trying to explain is that always has to live inside of you. So it doesn't matter whether you're singing. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of the holy grail of music. It, you can listen to some music that sounds extremely scattered but it still has these things in it and um, playing the accordion I picked up the accordion because it would did things that I wanted to say on the harmonica that I wasn't able to uh, playing more chords and stuff and um, it was yeah it was a challenge trying to figure it out now I would say I'm not the master of any of these instruments uh, the point is I use them all as tools to say what I'm trying to say. I'm, I'm, I've been very fortunate that the harmonica has risen to be pretty much my top instrument and, I, and I'm able to get studio work and play uh, you know, on movie scores and different things that I really never dreamed would be presented to me. So uh, um, 
yeah, it's all about that. And getting back to the, uh, you know, I, I got to meet Charlie McCoy, who's the most recorded musician in his history. He's played on more hit records than anybody. An incredible stylist on harmonica, and his tone is unbelievable. And, you know, I realized that when he played on something like uh, George Jones, you know, he stopped loving her today. There's maybe two notes that he plays. They're, they're put it right in a place to grab your heart. And those two notes mean so much because you need something to push you into this. What is he saying? He sounds so sad, but what is he saying? And those two notes push your heart to a place and it's the tone that's doing it because it's only two notes. And uh, I think that's a good explanation of how that works. Uh, some of the movie scores that I've done where they, they have a whole orchestra with all of this stuff. Most of it's done, probably all of it's done electronically now. But uh, there'll be one little scene where I'll, we'll go through the movie and he'll pull out a piece, an oboe piece or any other piece. But I remember this oboe and he said, I just want you to play what the oboe is playing right here. Because whether you hear it or not, you probably don't hear it. You don't even know it's there. It is there and it, it's affecting you emotionally because it's coming back to you. Uh, it's happening so fast that you don't realize it, but it's so organic in the middle of all of these strings and horns and stuff. Here's a little piece of organic matter that, that pushes something. And I could play you it back and you probably would never hear it but it's there and it's just like a lot of recordings that use these underbellies of all kinds of things that you don't even know are there but they're they were put there to fortify the sound of the song i i because i'm not a musician i hope this isn't a stupid question but if you were to take a song and put a solo on to that song and you have the choice of either playing it with your saxophone or your harmonica, but you know what the melody is going to be. Would the phrasing and the tone be similar in both instruments because it's being played by you and it's the same solo? Well, I have to say, I just to correct you, I, I haven't played saxophone. Uh, um, some, somebody broke into our van, and I'll never forget, in Kansas City, we were staying at the Midwest Hotel. This was probably around... 1982 and uh and stole everything and i lost my sax my dad's sax and i just never played again so wow. i i haven't played somebody gave me one and i picked it up once uh, one time i was in uh denmark and i was sleeping on a couch and there was a saxophone sitting next to me for about three days and i finally just said oh, i gotta try it out <laughs> and i was amazed that i could still play a little bit but uh that question is the same as whatever is touching the way you're feeling at the time. Um, when people want you to play on something, they usually know what, what it is they want. And a, 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 in a session, somebody a lot of times says, well, I'll get calls where they want a harmonica part on it and I'll get there. And I realize that they don't know what they want. They thought a harmonica would sound as soon as I play it for them. It, it, that's not, that, that's not the sound I was looking for. Either that or they'll want like some kind of Stevie Wonder kind of thing, whereas, you know, it's not really 
what I do. So, <laughs> you know, tone's not going to help me much if they already know what it is they want. Right. When you were getting into guitar and harmonica at the age of 10, what kind of music were you into? Well, like every kid, I, you know, listened to all the radio stuff and, uh, and a lot of the jukebox music. Um, um, I was fortunate that my dad had real cool records. So, you know, we listened to a lot of the R&B jump stuff. And, uh, um, you know, he, we had a lot of sax player records, um, which was, I, he was, he was pre-bebop. So, you know, it was more big band. Um, and then, you know, my brother had bought these records, uh, Sonny Boy Williamson, uh, John Lee Hooker records. And I, I just, I don't know. They, they, it was like, they were talking to me and I just, he didn't, he just had them and he thought, you know, it was cool to have them or whatever, but they were, that was me. Like whatever I heard from those records was speaking to me. And, um, he tried to play harmonic and he bought the Tony Glover book and everything, but he, he just didn't have it. So that's kind of how I got started. I just, he had the record, he had the, he had the book, which I, I didn't understand the book too much because it was all like hipster language. And uh, I was just a little kid, so. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I remember hearing the Sonny Boy, Sonny Boy one, John Lee Williamson. And just how does he do that? And how does he, and back then there was just nobody to talk to. There was nobody to ask how to do it. The first guy that I really learned anything from was uh, I went to a, a folk festival and they had little workshops and I could already play a little bit, but I learned, you know, diatonic scales and different things from this guy. And uh, that's when I first really got to uh, actually be playing with people. And it was the first, uh, the first blues man I ever played with, uh, he seemed like such an old man and he was probably like, you know, in his fifties then. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I got to play with him. It was a huge thing for me as a little kid. And, uh, that was honey boy Edwards. And I saw honey boy before he died, he was almost a hundred years old. And, you know, and I talked to him about it and told him, and he just kind of looked at me like, I don't know, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. But which I, I'm sure he would have. And I hope I lived that long and some kid does that to me. Yeah, yeah. But Howlin' Wolf and seeing Howlin' Wolf was a big thing for you. Can you explain, can you just give me a paint a picture of what that was like for you? Because at the age of 12 or 13, like, I, you know, I maybe it's just me that I came to the blues a lot later. To me, it was way more mature than I was able to handle at the age of 12. But obviously it connected with you at that time. How did it connect with you? What happened when you saw Howlin' Wolf? Well, that put the pieces together for me to, to send me to go. You know, I lived in New Jersey, just on the other side of New York City. And uh, in the 70s, there was, you could see any living blues man you wanted to, because they all came to New York City. You just had to know who they were. And then you could find out where they were. And when you'd met people that you could go see, they would say, oh, go see this guy, Otis Rush, you know, you'll love him. We, we just, these pieces all fell together because I realized that, that the target for me was to find 
find these people, find out what I can knowledge I can get, whatever it was, I, I had to do it. I know when I was in high school, I could go do that. But I was going to a swimming camp. I was a, you know, I went to college uh, as a, uh, you know, schol on scholarship to go to swim, competitive swimming. Um, I was going to a swimming camp at the University of Miami and uh, all the kids were there. Well, I was walking around the campus and I saw, you know, they had one of those outdoor uh, stages and I heard this guy playing. Well, he was actually, he was just singing and he was all by himself. And there was a bunch of college kids hanging around and he's just singing and I, and uh, I'm like, wow, this guy's cool. I wonder who this guy is. I got right in the front and then somebody handed him a harmonica and he started playing harmonica and singing. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> that's real. I think it was the first, you know, really first time I ever saw anything like that. And, and I, and I swear the guy that this is the way I remember it. I swear the guy looked right at me with this terrifying look and like almost to say you're gonna get this thing like i'm looking at you kid he must have saw that i was interested or whatever it was i don't this is the way i remember it was so long ago i i this is the way i'd like to remember it uh, and uh was playing furiously and just like looked like he was really intimidating and then he kind of smiled and i was like whoa this, you know, this is, this is just to show it was relieving to see him smile. And, uh, and then they were promoting this show for that night that was in the, uh, the, um, the college pub or whatever it was on campus. And they had, and the blues show was going there. And uh, I had to sneak away from the swimming camp to go over there. When I got there, I was so young, they wouldn't let me in. So I stood out outside and I listened and I waited for this guy you know and and to hear him I didn't even know who he was you know and then I looked at the poster and then I realized what 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 I was hearing and when I went home I just was like I'm straight to get Helen Wolf records and you thought this is what I want to do it seemed to me that whatever he was looking at me like that it was almost like I you know this is yeah, something happened to me, and I just kind <laughs> of, I, I don't know what was was he trying to tell me the same thing my father was telling me when he looked at me and said, "You're the one," you know. I don't know what it was, but whatever it was, it was like a bolt of lightning, you know. And I was just so moved by the guy that I was like, "Wow!" And then as soon as I got the records, you know, I was at home with the harmonicas, you know, singing, "How many more years?" I was trying. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta get it, you know. And I sadly, I never saw him, you know. And I never got to see him live, other than that little thing. Wow. And uh, a lot of the people that I talked to after that said he was already kind of in bad health, so uh, it, 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 you know, it was on on the backside. But you can, you can, you know, if you're listening to the interview and you want to get after we get done, is probably one of the best. There's so much great footage of him. But the one where he's uh, doing uh, how many more years with the Rolling Stone guys are all there and it's it's live in London or whatever. It's one of those shindig things. He just goes apeshit. <laughs> he's like, like, he did the same thing to these people, these kids in London that he'd done to me. 
But, uh, you know, I'm obviously just for that one performance, it basically changed your life. Or that's what it seems like to me, that he touched you in, 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 in a way where you thought, this, this is what I want to pursue, which is pretty magnificent when you think about it. Yeah, it's I don't I don't know if it's this is okay. This is what I'm gonna do, but it pretty much sent me down a path saying I gotta figure this out. I'm I, I'm not gonna I'm not giving up on this, and it it, it I, I could have very well, uh, you know, had my father hand me Charlie Parker record and say this is why this is so great. This is why you need to get this, and it might have sent me in a whole different direction. I found this guy and I felt like I found him on my own. I was walking through, you know, a campus and I heard him and I went and found him. And, and it was something that it was just me and it was just him as far as I was concerned. <laughs> I wonder, so obviously your swimming background, you must have been a decent swimmer to get a scholarship. And I know swimming takes a lot of discipline. You probably had a lot of early mornings in the pool. Um, I presume that that same kind of discipline might have gone into the way you learned music. Yeah, the competitive thing is is huge. Uh, you know, uh, being a swimmer was is it, I guess you have to understand the the concept behind this is you know how fast you can go. So I don't know if you <laughs> you know exactly what you can do. Your time is this. It may change by fractions of a second but you know as the fastest you can be and you know pretty much how fast the other guy is going to be it's not like a horse racing where you can you know run into somebody we're in our lane and we're just going to go so it's kind of determined that you're going to be the fastest guy at the swim meet so the idea of holding that all the time as you know where you are but you have to keep your skill all the time so it's constant constantly uh, trying to better yourself so that you can knock some of that hundreds of a second off of your time. I find that it's, it's a lot like music because um, always stri striving to improve all the time. And, um, you know, you always are thinking, well, I feel pretty comfortable with what I do. I think my skill level's good, but it's never seems to be as good as, you know, you want it to be. I, I like what, what Kim had to say in that interview you did with him is that uh, he's always learning all the time. And I would, I saw a video of him uh, in his little room practicing, you know, his wife took, <laughs> this is great. This guy is like the baddest ass player on the planet and he's practicing, you know? So I love that. Yeah. It's always there. So, you went to university. Was there any other goal than to be a musician by the time you were in Colorado attending um, university for your swimming scholarship? Or was there a chance that swimming could have been in your future? Well, it was. I, I, was a, I was a swimming coach and I managed like, you know, a country club pool and a summer, summer clubs. But he, at the same time, I was playing music in bands. I had my first couple of bands going pretty good. And, and that definitely sent me in that direction. And, uh, you know, uh, getting, you know, free drinks and meeting girls and stuff, not too bad. You know? <laughs> <can> do that. <laughs> when, when, when you're, you know, when you're 19, 20 years old, I mean, uh, you get to travel around and 
it was uh, it was pretty nice. And then you find your way th- after a number of different moves. You find your way into New Orleans. Um, I don't know if on your earlier albums you would have been chasing what New Orleans music was. I presume it was probably more Chicago blues and the Delta blues. I don't know if I'm wrong in that, but I think it's chasing the the records that this. I hate to keep bringing Kim up to the, this. We were listening to the same stuff. There was a lot of parallels, and while the T-Birds were putting out records with covers by uh you know lazy lester and and uh uh new orleans guys um you know guitar slim and they're they're all of that music was on record so you know you would get these things uh i remember the first time um gatemouth brown came through town i was in you know in college and i was i didn't know who he was so of course he'd go buy all the records and then you know that led me to other things. Oh, well, there was Professor Longhair. There was, uh, well, of course, Clifton Chenier. You know, all every time you seem to open a box, there was another box behind it. You know, and Slim Harpo. So uh, the the regions of music continually open. You know, some of the greatest stuff Clifton Chenier recorded was in Chicago, with with some of the chess guys. So we were all. Uh, buying the records and when you looked on a record you you know want to see what you know well i remember uh buying a johnny winter record and and it was like i was looking at the record i was like oh big walter's on this (laughs) wow i gotta get this record you know so yeah i mean it was wide open to uh, whatever your record collection would influence you and 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 you could follow in that direction my by the time I got to New Orleans, I don't want to get too far ahead, but I remember the first idea of making a record. I I got a chalkboard that I found in the trash, big chalkboard. I put it on the wall and I wrote, you know, how to succeed or whatever I wrote. I don't remember, but it was, you know, I'm going to write down all the things I need. And the top one was to, you know, make a record. Okay, well, how do I do that? I'd write all the things down and then I'd get to the bottom one and then I'd wipe it all off and then got to write songs. And then I, you know, how do I do that? I wrote all the stuff down. I'd get it out. Okay, and I got songs. How do I? <laughs> and each time I would, I would move a little bit closer. And the concept was me, like, I pulled out all these records from my collection and I put them all over the place and said, I've got to make a record. That sounds like all these records. <laughs> like I gotta take all this stuff and put it together. And that's the, the Crescent City Moon record that I made is that record. It's pretty much all over the place. And uh, it won all kinds of local awards and opened a lot of doors for me here uh, because I just said, well, uh, this isn't Chicago blues. This isn't New Orleans R&B. This is everything I could possibly fit. And that's why I tried to kind of targeted it that way. At what point, and I don't know if this you have an answer for this, but at what point do you know who you are as an artist? I mean, I presume you know who you are now, but back then, did you know musically where you wanted to be and what you wanted to tell? I, I really still don't know that. Um, I think the first time you you get a real crowd to come out 
and you realize that people want to hear certain songs you wrote or, um, or, you know, you get a nice review. Um, they're not all nice and, um, and rightfully so, you know, if there's criticism you want to know about it, but all of those things help you to develop as an artist to move in to say, okay, you know, really, um, you know, one of the important things, I, I know you have a lot of musicians listening to this and, and they already know this, but I, a lot of this process is a confidence game. <laughs> Don't let anybody fool you. <laughs> you know, if you, you watch somebody on stage, if they're really confident in what they're doing, you say, well, I, they must know what they're doing, so I'm going to pay attention. But if you watch somebody that's all shy and not, doesn't really present the stuff, uh, you know, you see what you hear, and uh, I, I, gee, I would have never thought that that was the guy that I have this record. Uh, so the whole thing is a big confidence game. Really, you have to you walk in in front of somebody. You have to be able to show them that you know that you belong there. I don't know if that answers the question, but I, I think that yeah. really shows. Okay, I do belong here because. Uh, I have, I have convinced myself I have what it takes to be how, on this. How easy was it to? I, I just it's it's weird because when I think of New Orleans, I think of a, very much a music city. But I don't know as an artist there if it's a type of city that you need to you want to establish yourself within New Orleans, or if it's one of those places where you you kind of want the tradition, but you need to kind of establish yourself outside of the city because. I get the impression there's a lot of touristy gigs and yeah. they want something that's that that goes under this cylinder of whatever New Orleans is. But I wonder as a musician, a serious musician like yourself, when you go to New Orleans, what do you hope to accomplish and what do you hope to establish? And is it easy to make a name for yourself in New Orleans? When there's so many great well, musicians. Well, I have to say, I, I, you know, I tried every place. I lived in Austin for a year and uh, I was happy to hear Kim went through the same experience I did only years before when he didn't pay his electric bill because he didn't have any money. I didn't know any of that stuff. So thanks for sharing that. <laughs> um, I went, I, 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 I remember doing an interview where I felt bad about it after I'm not trying to put Austin down, but it seemed like there was, there was a lot of brick walls and my head hit every one of them. So, Cause I just banged into things and I couldn't make anything happen. And uh, when I came to new Orleans, it was different because people seem to want to reach out and say, Oh, well, what do you got to show us? You know, we, we it's a more of a sharing kind of thing where a lot of towns, music towns or tourist towns, you know, these little gigs are hard to get, whether they be, you know, at noon to three or, or four to eight or whatever it is. Uh, that's a guy's livelihood. And if, you know, he doesn't want a guy move, coming from moving here from Connecticut and, and taking his gig. So they can be very protective about that kind of stuff. And these are weekly gigs and these people work five, six days a week playing, you know, in the afternoon, that's the kind of city New Orleans is. Um, and you don't want to lose that. Um, and uh, it also has a, uh, you know, what we call the golden handcuffs, where you work your way into a position that you can't give up. 
So somebody offers you a, a tour to go to Europe or something. Oh man, I can't go because if I leave this gig, somebody's going to take it. Hmm. So there's all, all you know, <laughs> we're a bunch of wolves out here. <laughs> don't, don't let anybody fool you. <laughs> but did it take a while to establish yourself as a New Orleans musician? Because I presume that's how people see you now. Oh yeah, I mean it takes forever. I've been here. I live here you know, more than I've ever lived anywhere else put together. You know, I've, I've been here, I've been living here more than half of my life. And, uh, and I've grown up with all these people, um, you know, we 30, 35 years, we, you know, there's a lot of time invested in, in what I've done here. So yeah. Uh, the first couple of years was really difficult. I also, I once had the pleasure of seeing you play with the voices of the wetlands on the blues cruise, I think. Um, tell me about that project. Does that project still exist? Because I, I presume it's still an issue, um, but I, I don't know what the status of that is. The band is still, uh, it, it gets presented uh, normally twice a year. We, we Everybody has their own careers, and it is an all-star band, right? Uh, which keeps changing. I mean, we, for a while, Dr. John was in the band. Um, uh, the core members are still there. Uh, we always play jazz fest every year uh, and we have uh, done other things during Mardi Gras here and there, but we always do jazz fest and we, we try to do the uh, Forest Wetlands Festival. It, it, first off, it's an incredible honor to be in this band because these guys are all heroes of mine. And um, some of them are younger than me that I came up with. I mean, I met Tab when he was just starting out, Tab Benoit. And, um, you know, so we came up musically together and actually we're going to be doing a tour starting in September with Tab called uh, Tab Benoit's Swampland Jam. Um, we tested the waters on Broadway in New York. We went and played this uh, Sony Hall and sold it out. And it was Tab's band with Big Chief Monk Boudreaux, myself, and well in Thibodeau. So we were able to bring some Mardi Gras music, some of what I do, some of what Wellen does and, and mix it all in with Tab's show. We're gonna to be touring with that. I think we're gonna be starting right, possibly at the, um, I don't know if it's been negotiated yet, but I know Tab and I will both be at the Big Blues Bender in Las Vegas in September, beginning of September. And then I think we have a West Coast tour with that band. And uh, yeah, I hope, I hope Jazz Fest comes in October. We're on there with Voice of Wetlands again. So what's the situation with the disappearing wetlands and the erosion of the coast? Is it, I mean, I presume it's still a major issue. It doesn't go away and it's a man-made problem. So we're just, the concept of people understanding that these things are there and people are always saying, well, what can I do to help? You know, you can write your congressman. There's... <laughs> You just need to be aware. That's the whole idea behind the uh, uh, the wetlands message is these people are lo losing their backyards. This the, Big Chief Monk Boudreaux put it best in one of his songs that says, the land is leaving and it ain't coming back. <laughs> so, so when you're thinking that there was towns that your grandfather was buried in that are not there anymore. It's all underwater now. And this was a man-made problem. The, you know, a lot of this, well, the, the wetlands were dredged out to put down 
uh, oil pipe lines that would go feeding different areas. And then the uh, Mississippi River levees were built up to keep fre fresh water from flowing into those places. And these are all between uh, between the big oil and gas companies and the Corps of Engineers, they got it wrong. And, uh, you know, there's people suffering for, from it. Well said. Let's talk about your new album. You're working on a new album right now. Well, I'm is... in my house right now working on it. And uh, yeah, it's like there's stuff all over the place. Uh, we just leave it set up. I don't really live here. Uh, I live in, in my little bar in the back that I've <laughs> <laughs> this my house is a studio right now. Um, how does how does this album start, and what what goes into something like this? Well, it's interesting because I had uh, uh, people come to town and they call me up, and uh, Johnny Bergen came to town, and he uh, rocking Johnny Bergen. I don't know if you're familiar with him. I am. He he's been an, an old friend of mine, and he uh, he's come here to look after his mom who lives in Gretna and uh, he's from Chicago and he plays that really great style of, of guitar. He's a great artist and he's a really good person. And I wanted to, you know, get involved with him, but it was difficult because that's what he does. He specializes in this thing that there's not really a call for here. So I thought I'd create something and we started playing some, some blues together and it opened perked my ears up to other possibilities when i put a little session together to see what would happen while i was putting it together and thinking how i could do it well, we have no budget we're going to have to do it any way we can so we got some recording gear and set it up in the house we'll just see what happens when we start putting it together and uh, my friend mike morgan calls me from dallas and he says hey man uh, wonder if my wife and I could stay at your house on our way to Pensacola to go on vacation. And I said, yeah, man, that'd be great if you can stay for a day and record on this record. And he said, <laughs> oh yeah, that'd be cool. So now I got Chicago, one of my favorite Chicago blues guitar players. I got one of my favorite Texas blues guitar players. And I start writing for this because now I know I say, okay, well I got, now I got something that I can fool with. And, uh, we I started writing directly for two guitar players in the first session we did it sounded like a, a uh, I just put them up against each other and said all right you know you this is going to be like you know you're Eric Clapton and you're Dwayne Allman bam you guys <laughs> and we, you know it, it almost started sounding like a southern rock record a little bit for a minute because these guys went to town you know that so i was when i listened to the playback i was like whoa you know there's a slide guitar mingling with uh this freddie king style guitar and i thought okay we're we're on the right track and that made me sit down we only had a few days we got we got that about five songs down that that sent me on a whole nother path. Now I'm going to try to get some more guests and, um, and we're going to put these things together. New Orleans, Chicago and Dallas come to New Orleans. And we, <laughs> that was my idea. And we were going to like put, 
I started writing like that. And then I started writing for people thinking, well, if I can get this guy to sing this, this is going to be great. I don't want to give all the information up, but I am very excited about it. And uh, it's underway right now. We start again tomorrow and we have another like five days. Mike flies in tomorrow and um, it's going to be really good. It's homemade. So <laughs> I, it's not a studio quality thing that I'm going to be bragging about the quality. It, it's presenting something that's completely homemade, just the same way that I, I made it uh, Poor Man's Paradise, right? In the same place. I actually had pictures from that it was recorded. I don't remember what year that was. It was in the 90s. And um, I had pictures of where we set had everything set up and we put everybody in the same places and took another picture and recorded it the same way because that record came out and won a bunch of awards and did really well and that was a labor of love in this house i wonder um the success you've had with your songwriting like the lord is waiting and the devil is too where you won the blues music award for best song i believe that kind of success i presume helps to give you the confidence that you spoke about and 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 i guess I, does the approach to writing change because of something like that to get that kind of recognition i don't think it changes really anything uh that was a representation of what i was going through at the time and these things always change emotionally you feel different it's who you're playing with can change things a lot but i i don't think uh um I was very surprised to get any kind of awards or anything with that. Um, all that means is it, it it touched people enough that you know they felt something deserving, and uh, well, you know it really changed a lot for me that I I so, well, you win a, an award, you're a bona fide songwriter. <laughs> so, when when some people get together and say you 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 win, then okay, now I. I that means I could put songwriter on my business card now. Well, it's a great song. Um, Thank you. I, I, wonder, I wonder as an artist, when you go back to that young kid who, who got into the blues, who witnessed Howlin' Wolf singing right to you, and I don't, I don't know what that image of the blues was to you as a 13-year-old or a 12-year-old kid, but you've, pa you've kind of followed this path of being a, a musician and a blues musician. Um, is it, I, I don't know if it, it's probably not fair to say, is it what you thought? But did it surprise you to take this route and, and to experience the journey that you've had to what you might have thought it would have been as a young kid? I had no idea what it was going to be, and I had no expectations. I don't remember thinking that I was going to make a living out of this or anything was going to, you know, it was just like living day by day. And everything, every time I got to play with somebody, that uh, was willing to give me a shot, that was meant much more to me coming up in success than any anything any pat on the back or anything like that. And uh, and then befriending my heroes meant the world to me. So uh, if if I could get that, that would have been enough for me. And then actually going out and playing with with them. Um, it was, it was amazing. And I, you know, John Lee Hooker was one of the first guys that I'd listened to. And uh, we opened a show for him one night 
I was, I wasn't sure what was going to happen. Uh, it was in a big theater and somebody came and said, uh, uh, John Lee wants to, wants to talk to the, the harmonica player. So I said, Oh, okay. So I went backstage and I said, uh, uh, John Lee Hooker, um, Johnny Sanson, he said, no, you ain't, you little Walt. And I, <laughs> I was like, whoa, <laughs> I didn't know what to say to him. And I said, and he said, who's the singer? Go, go, go get him. You know, we were talking about, I said, well, I'm the singer. And he goes, he goes, man, you're all right. Will you play with us? And I was like, yeah. You know? <laughs> so it was like being on tour with John Lee Hooker. We did, you know, we did a bunch of shows together and I played with him every night. So it was really, it was real, you know, things like that. I don't know if that stuff happens today, but back then, when you were a kid, that was an amazing feat. I'm going to ask you one more question. We'll wrap this up. But when you have something like that, and I know you've played with a lot of different people, like Ronnie Earl, John Lee Hooker, Jimmy Rogers. I, I wonder, what's the greatest lesson you learned from them? Um, it's really a tough question but i i think um i it, it's it's almost impossible uh to to come up with one thing but i i believe when you're when you're living with people um and you see day in and day out how they conduct their, themselves there's a giant learning curve as to how to be a professional musician and the honor that they carried with them and the respect that they were able to have was a huge, uh, a, a huge um, learning process. And it, and it still is. I mean, I, we go with the voice of the wetlands, all stars and uh, you know, people will, I've worked both sides of this, you know, uh, where I've been the guy in the van that goes to pick up, you know, the artists at the hotel or the airport and take them to the festival. And I've watched guys just not even recognize you, that you're there. And I watch guys in, in uh, you know, I've been on that side. And then I watch guys like in the Voice of Wet, Wetlands All-Stars before we even get to the venue, we're all getting out our, our tip money and getting ready to thank the guy for doing this. There, it's, it's a huge, you know, it's a, it doesn't seem like much, but when it's, when it's every day and you're doing it all the time, maybe you didn't know you're supposed to tip that guy. There, your, your life, uh, you have to show your value back in a lot of ways. And I, and I, I believe that I learned a lot about uh, being an honorable person, I guess would be the best way to say, to put it, uh, in this crazy business. Well, Johnny, thank you so much for taking time to do this. I really appreciate it. Well, I got to tell you, man, uh, I can't wait to listen to more of your interviews. I, 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 uh, I'm a fan, and uh, we just haven't had a chance to run down all of them. But when I saw the list that you sent me, I was like, whoa, and you want me? <laughs> Something does sound right here. But I am so honored. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.